Hey, and welcome to Legal Voices, Meritas' official podcast channel where we bring to you industry-related legal updates. In our latest series, Mario Torres, lawyer at Meritas member firm Brazo Seller and co-chair of Meritas' Latin America and Caribbean Cannabis Law Group, interviews lawyers from around the world to learn more about how each jurisdiction is handling cannabis and marijuana legalization. Before I hand it off to Mario, and for those of you who are new to Meritas, Meritas is an established global alliance of closely connected yet independent law firms that each offer a full range of high-quality specialized legal services. We were built upon a rigorous system for monitoring and enhancing the quality of our member firms and have been connecting clients with carefully qualified business legal expertise in over 250 markets around the world since 1990. Hi everybody, this is the first episode in a series about cannabis regulation around the world. I will be interviewing some of the best lawyers in the industry from Meritas member firms to get a sense of what regulation looks like on the ground floor. Joining me today is Alex Malashev from Meritas member firm Carter Ledyard in Milburn in New York City. Alex is a legal pioneer in this space and he advises clients on cannabis law related matters across the board. Alex, we're very lucky to have you as our first guest. Welcome. We're here with Alex Malashev from New York, Carter Ledyard in Milburn. That's correct. That's that's where we are. We're actually physically in New York as opposed to my apartment in New Jersey. <laughs> Great. You know, I, I came in as well. Uh, uh, you know, you got you got to get out of the house sometimes and put on the button-up shirt. So this is as good as right. this is any. Uh, it, it's a pleasant surprise. It still fits. Yeah. <laughs> so Alex, I, I I think as I've mentioned, what we're doing in this series, we're we're really looking to get an understanding of legalization of cannabis, the regulation of cannabis. They're they're not necessarily synonymous. They're related, and we're seeing a trend worldwide. And we've been seeing this trend occurring and coming since in the U.S. since 2014 with Washington and Colorado, Uruguay, which was, uh, I think, 2014, around that same time, Canada, 2018. Surprise if a week or a month doesn't go by and another, it's another thing on a state, you know, platform or docket. How has the U.S. really gotten to this stage in its current iteration of, of legalization? Sure. The U.S. is uh, in some ways very easy and in some ways very difficult. So as a practical matter, there is uh, some deference to states and quite a lot of deference to states. But on a federal level, legally, cannabis remains completely illegal. It is the same as any other Schedule One drug. So the U.S. has a federal statute, the uh, CSA, which is its implementation of the UN protocols and has schedules very similar to what's uh, at the international level. It was adopted in the 1970s. It, it tracked what the UN protocols say because the US was actually a major proponent of them as part of the sort of larger war on drugs. Cannabis actually ended up on the most restrictive list. Uh, so schedule one is reserved for drugs that have a very high likelihood of abuse and dependence and importantly, have no medical use. Uh, Now, that seems anathema considering almost every state in in the United States has some version of medical cannabis, at least the vast majority of them do. Uh, Some have gone to adult use. But as far as the federal government is concerned, cannabis is completely illegal because he has no medical use. There is some movement afoot to force the DEA, which decides which schedule the drugs are on, 
to move it to schedule two, which would make it medicinal. That would obviously change the industry in a big way. We are not there yet. There are some lawsuits uh, that are trying to prod them along, but under the sort of administrative code, there's a lot of deference to the DEA and they're just sort of taking their time. That is sort of the 30,000 foot view. Uh, but as you get a little bit closer, the practical considerations are different. As you sort of mentioned in 2014, there was a movement for legalization. And at around the same time during the Obama administration, two important policies came into, into force. They are the Congressional Writer Memo. It's colloquially known as a Robacher Amendment that is named after its first sponsor. It, it first came into force in 2014, now known as the Blumenthal Amendment under the current sponsor. But basically what it is, is a congressional spending rider. Every year, Congress adop adopts a federal budget and allocates funds to its myriad of agencies, including the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice is prohibited from spending any money on enforcing the CSA with respect to cannabis only for medical use states. And the, and the number of states that are listed in that congressional rider gets longer and longer every year. What it does is prevents the DOJ from expending any funds in prosecuting companies that are operating in accordance with state law that is medicinal. Uh, that is not adult use. It, it's really limited to medicinal. But that has led to some case law out of the uh, Western United States, the Ninth Circuit, that actually has stopped some prosecutions and some seizures that has not been adopted nationwide because it hasn't gone to our highest courts. For those who are outside of the United States, the United States is exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of states, 50 of them, plus various territories and possessions. And each has a dual sovereignty system. So we have state governments that can pass laws, and we have the federal government that sits sort of on top. And uh, under our constitution, the federal laws are still supreme to the state laws. So even if something is state legal, uh, if the government has taken the position that it uh, controls the field, federal law controls. And as a result, while something might be legal at the state level, it can still be illegal on the federal level. So Alex, so I understand that there you know, are these co congressional tools that stop in federal law enforcement from going after medical cannabis participants. What's stopping them from going after adult use industry participants? Right. So the second thing that came around in the 2013-2014 timeframe was the memorandum from the Department of Justice to its AUSAs. Uh, it, it's colloquially known as the Cole Memorandum. That is a direction to local Justice Department officials on how to exercise their discretion in using their limited funds. And what it basically said, at least starting in the Obama administration, was we have bigger fish to fry than going after people who are complying with state adult use and medical use cannabis laws. So as a result, here's a list of priorities. And the priorities are, first and foremost, uh, making sure that there's no illegal diversion of cannabis to minors, uh, to organized crime and across state lines, which is a very big one. So that's why the cannabis market is very siloed in the United States. But it said, you should not use your budget on doing this. Instead, you should go after people who are otherwise violating the law. Now, importantly, this was completely discretionary. It was just guidance on how to exercise that authority. It actually got rescinded in 
the opening days of the Trump administration because Jeff Sessions, who was our attorney general for what seemed like two weeks, uh, was not a proponent of cannabis legalization. In fact, he was a very big opponent. Uh, what he did was rescind the memo. Now, he didn't say that they should go after cannabis companies. What he said was discretion means exactly what discretion says. And as a result, you should use your discretion uh, and you're not going to have this guidance in force. As a practical matter, very little seemed to have changed. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, uh, that guidance that Cole put out was itself based on guidance that's already in the uh, manual for AUSAs. In fact, that's publicly available, but uh, like any government bureaucracy, the Department of Justice has sort of operating procedures and best practices. And there are best practices about how to utilize limited assets of the government. And it was generally in, in compliance with that. More importantly, the Cole Memorandum priorities made their way into the Department of the Treasury's uh, FinCEN program, which is the anti-money laundering arm of the Department of Treasury. They are the ones who the SAR reports go to from various banks. So when they gave banks guidance on how to interact with state legal cannabis businesses, they've incorporated uh, verbatim the Cole Memorandum. That FinCEN guidance actually never got rescinded. So it's still in force. And uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a prosecution that has materially departed from that guidance. There have been subpoenas, and people probably know about the Weed Maps subpoena in, in California. That seems to have been occasional, or at least what attracted the government was actually departure from those guidance. They were pretty flagrantly, apparently, for a while, listing unlicensed cannabis businesses uh, because California's enforcement was so lax at the time. They got into a bit of a headbutting match with California, and that attracted the Department of Justice. In addition, what happened recently were a couple of gentlemen associated with these got convicted of money laundering for trying to avoid some of the reporting related to cannabis, even though some of it was uh, state legal cannabis. Access to banking is very limited and access to credit cards is non-existent. They were attempting to assist those businesses in accessing that by creating dummy corporations that, in fact, engaging in money laundering, which is what they can, got convicted of. So while the federal government has generally a more or less of a hands-off approach to businesses that comply with cannabis laws, once you step outside those lines, pretty quickly find out they are actually still watching. So you raise an important point because I'm, I'm kind of struggling here. Here in Canada with the legalization, we had some banks that just didn't want to touch it and still don't. And most have said, okay, you know, it's it's legal here. We're, well, let's go for it. Because I know it has an impact and it's going to lead directly to my next question. But how does a company that engages in legal in-state cannabis commerce bank? So... It doesn't bank with your big Main Street banks that you think of, you know, Chase, Bank of America, et cetera. They will not touch that. It's, it's a business risk decision. They receive the same guidance from FinCEN that every other bank has received. But there are banks that are the more comfortable than others in doing this. And the numbers of FinCEN reports inflate that number. But I think at any given time, there are about 60 to 80 banks in the United States banks and credit unions, they will bank the cannabis industry. They will bank a licensed cannabis businesses in general, and uh, more of them will bank cannabis adjacent businesses than direct cannabis businesses. So businesses that touch the leaf have a harder time finding banking services than some cannabis adjacent businesses. But there are a number of them. Example? 
cannabis adjacent, like I understand the cannabis company would be your, you know, your operators and what would be cannabis adjacent that might find themselves kind of walking the line then? Sure. Let's see. A cultivator would be obviously cannabis touching operation. The company that supplies it with the grow house lamps would be a cannabis adjacent business. And you have to take a step back and think about the bank's anti-money laundering concerns. They have to monitor all of this. And if the revenue is ultimately derived from the sale of a, an illegal substance, they need to be able to track it. So the company that makes the lights uh, for the grow house needs to report and will likely get flagged as cannabis adjacent. Uh, and they should be uh, proactively telling their bank about it. Otherwise, if the bank finds out on their own, they will probably terminate their relationship. But the money itself is still derived from the sale of cannabis. And you know, a, a very zealous enforcement of the laws would actually sort of capture people the further, further you get away from the bud because you are still tracing the money and the proceeds of an illegal business. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's some fine line walk, and I can see. And if I'm understanding correctly, this is you know sort of letter of the law. There is still the possibility, or or the, the federal government does have the ability to enforce these laws. It's almost a political choice that it's making, or maybe even like you mentioned, a economic choice that it's making to focus elsewhere. Is that fair? I would say that is absolutely fair, 100% accurate for adult use. It is purely the discretion of the prosecutors. The congressional writers and, and medical use have a little more teeth, and that seems to be an actual affirmative choice of the legislature to at least relax, if not totally rescind the laws. At least that is the interpretation the New Jersey Supreme Court recently took in a decision where it actually forced a insurer to reimburse somebody for medical cannabis use. They took the federal government's stance of now going on seven years, prohibiting their own enforcement arm from prosecuting those businesses as at least a softening of its stance, which some courts found enough wiggle room to enforce some contracts that are not otherwise enforceable. Gotcha. So Alex, the way that the U.S. has gotten to its current state today of legalization has been a, a bit of a, you know, let's call it a quilt with states kind of joining in and making it less tenable for the federal government to expend its its limited resources on enforcement if the states or the, the you know, the, the voters in, in certain states have said, this is something that we want and, uh, you know, pretty much leave us alone. So... That's how you, you've kind of gotten there. So how would you describe, uh, if you could, the current state of legalization in the in the U.S.? Sure. I, I think contrast with Canada is actually uh, sort of a very easy way to do this. If you think of Canada, it's it's a top-down approach. You, you legalize it at the federal level and gave some discretion at the state level how to enforce it. So you have a uniform law with, uh, with some variations at the you know, provincial level. But it, in general, that allows somebody to operate nationally with some discretion that, you know, uh, about how you do it at the local level. The U.S. has been a bottom-up approach. Uh, so we have, think about it as 50 different laws with an overlay of federal law, which is basically not enforcement. That makes it very different from somebody, for somebody to operate in states, you know, New York and New Jersey and even neighboring Pennsylvania, which at this point only has a medical uh, use, uh, that has created a siloing effect. 
Now, you know, businesses are as creative as, as you can imagine. So we had, a, while you guys have operating companies, we've gotten multi-state operators, MSOs, which basically invest in a siloed approach, but they have a sort of a parent at the top level. What it creates, honestly, is inefficiencies and it, it drives up costs. One of the big things that even though the federal government said we won't enforce or, uh, you know, we'll take a hands-off approach and we won't, you know, come in to uh, physically stop, what they haven't done is adjusted their tax laws in any way. So there is a section of the tax code, uh, section 280E, which makes it impossible for cannabis businesses to deduct most expenses. So it, it makes it because they're the proceeds of a crime. And, you know, as Al Capone found out, you have to pay your taxes. So as a result, it's actually a lot more expensive to operate in this space. And that really has created some difficulties for, for a lot of states. We are now having a really big movement towards um, social equity and correcting some of the uh, sins of the war on drugs. And part of it, states are trying to make it easier for people who've been impacted by this sort of war on drugs to participate in, in the you know, movement towards legalization. It's expected to be a giant industry. The problem is practical in a lot of ways. It's a really expensive industry to enter into, you know, in, especially in states that have a number limited, a limited number of licenses, which is really most of them. There are some states that are an exception. I believe Oklahoma went sort of very, you know, anyone who wants a license will get it, may run afoul of, of sort of the enforcement priorities in the coal memo. But in states where licenses have tangible value, because of their availability, that makes it actually a lot harder for some of those social equity applicants because what they don't have is really the ability to engage in the type of banking that is already expensive. So you're paying thousands of dollars in monitoring fees a month just to have a bank account for plant touching business. Uh, it gets cheaper the further away you get from the plant. You also don't get some of those very same deductions that you would get in a regular business. So Many states have tried to, to have a social equity component. Many of them have failed. New York is trying. Uh, we'll see how it turns out. They've tried to reserve a number of licenses for social equity applicants, but we'll have to see in three to five years whether they can actually run the business because that's that's has been expensive. And you know, enforcement at the state level is also an issue. California took a very hands-off approach to enforcing its its cannabis law. So it really didn't uh, hammer people for operating non-licensed dispensaries. What that has created actually is problems for the state legal dispensaries because they're competing with people who are not under the same regulatory and monetary burden. And as a result, now they're sort of trying to put the genie back in the bottle and it's been difficult. So we sort of have this these ex 50 different experiments going in 50 different states 40 something there, there's still a few holdouts but it's it's a very targeted approach you have to take to operating in any particular state just because you're operating in one state does not necessarily mean you'll be able to translate it into operations even the neighboring state and that makes it very exciting for for lawyers um, if your they gets legalized but it, it makes it harder and more expensive for, for companies to operate and and so with that alex you're you're touching on my, my final question or my final discussion topic, which is, you know, what what is coming or what ought to be coming with the legalization as it stands today? And is federal legalization the way to resolve a lot of this? Or is it something that, or once all the states get together and, and say, you know, we're legal here, this is like, what, what, 
what does the industry need and what is it likely to get in order to, to help it keep growing and thriving? Sure. Uh, and look, if I, if I really had the answer to this, I'd probably be doing something else for a lot more money. But uh, my, my best guess is look at hemp. So the U.S. in 2018 legalized hemp, which in Canada, uh, the way you approach hemp and CBD, you consider it cannabis, right? And it, those are cannabis-derived products. The U.S. through legal fiction has determined that uh, low THC cannabis is not cannabis at all. It is called hemp. And as a result, anything you derive from it, uh, subject to some exceptions that are trying to catch up to the speed of business, is not a controlled substance and got taken out of the Controlled Substances Act. That did not remove the federal government. What, in fact, it did was bring in the FDA. So there are federal regulations that right now state legal operators are not complying with because as an illegal substance, they're not subject to federal regulation, or at least they don't worry about federal regulation. Being illegal is, is worry enough, but there will be national standards for certain things. And the industry is not going to like how quickly or slowly the federal government moves, even once it takes that step. And, you know, maybe COVID was a distraction, but, you know, the FDA is still working on CBD regulations. It has now been three years. In fact, that's not all that slow. You know, I think the expectation is, uh, you know, anywhere between three and five years. So once uh, once it becomes federally legal, there will be some debate about whether the federal government will preempt uh, certain areas and and or sort of set a standard that if if you meet it, then you're complying. And it's sort of the way it works with uh, other industries. But state level protections are still going to be there. Things like consumer protection false advertising, perhaps testing will be done at the federal level. I have spoken to state level uh, regulators and, and people working in their labs. There's nothing more than they would to do than, than shuffle this off to being somebody else's problem. You know, they have other things to worry about than being the uh, regulator that tests cannabis products, but there needs to be some sort of standards that are going to be set. So my prediction is we're probably going to go to schedule two before we ever go to recreational legality at the uh, federal level but you know perhaps we get perhaps we leapfrog it but I, I would think that that's going to be the movement and at that point uh you're going to bring in regulators like the fda and the ftc sort of the same regulators that are not dealing with what has happened with uh, with hemp and cbd in particular and think that's really the way thc is going to go is that when you think you'll see the, the big banks and the big institutions get behind the industry? Because, for example, in Canada, you know, you have big institutional players and, and our big five banks involved, some more than others. But they don't they don't have that that federal concern that's that's existing, which I think has inhibited some of the bigger players in the U.S. from getting into the U.S. market. But they're happy to be in the Canadian market. Yeah. Is that sort of the, the, the gate opening there that, that, that some folks are waiting for maybe then, even if it is just that schedule two process? Yes, I think some things are happening in parallel. Uh, so you probably hear about the a lot about the Safe Banking Act. That is a industry, it, the American Banking Administration uh, Association that has been pushing it to uh, give banks some immunity for banking businesses that are state compliant. And it has support in the U.S. House. Don't know how if it has enough to get over the finish line in the U.S. Senate, which is more conservative than the House. But there are sort of enough votes to have it in discussion. That will get some of probably the more mid-sized banks into the business. 
again, for a bank like Chase, I don't know if the regulatory risk is worth you know tangling with the industry quite yet, even if, if that is in power, because there's still uh, compliance obligations and that just means more work for them. And But that will depress prices uh, likely when you have more entrants. Yes, I think once there's a movement to schedule two, I think what will happen is you'll have some of the big entrants into the industry, like big tobacco and big alcohol, take some of the same bets they've made in Canada and make them in the United States. And once they go there, they will bring their bankers with them. Got No, that's that's interesting. Uh, so really appreciate your time, Alex. And uh, I think maybe on our on our follow up or our next episode, well, I, I am interested to see how it works at within a state level. So sure. I think we've got some more to chat about uh, in, in the future. My pleasure. And uh, yes, I, you know, this was sort of, again, the very high level uh, view. There's only so much you can touch on, but it's, it's a fascinating topic and we'll, uh, we'll have more to talk about. Oh, for sure. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, Alex. Our guest today was Alex Malashev from Carter Ledyard and Milburn in New York City. You can find Alex on his firm's website, www.clm.com. He is constantly publishing and find all those resources and information on that website. And again, I'm Mario Torres from Brazo Sellers Law in Ottawa, Canada. Thank you very much for joining us today and have a great day. On behalf of Meritas, thank you for listening. Find this week's show notes and a variety of other free resources on the News and Insights section of the Meritas website, www.meritas.org. Be sure to join us next week to learn more about cannabis regulations around the globe. Thank you again for listening and have a wonderful day.